Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Roger, a student at King's College London. And, and this, this is That Many Podcast. Podcast. In today's show, I spoke to Dr. Rasheen Reach Singhani, a cardiologist and assistant professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Reach Singhani co-leads the practice of medicine course for first-year medical students and has worked extensively in curricular design, building programs from scratch. In this episode, we spoke about everything from the traits of students bound for success to how medical schools must adapt in the era of COVID-19. Today's show is perfect for anyone excited by medical education and what the future of the enterprise has to offer. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Hi, Dr. Regis Ngani. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. So we normally start the podcast by asking the question, why did you decide to study medicine? Well, hi, Simar, and hi to all your listeners. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. Um, you know, to answer your question, I think one of the big reasons, if I had to be totally honest, was that I couldn't do math and I wasn't very good at math. Um, so that a whole series of uh, professions were not ideal for me. Um, but eventually, when I did get into medicine, I think what I really liked about it, and this was early on in med school, was the, you know, the pathophysiology that we see even from, an, from anatomy and physiology and how that kind of plays into disease processes. And, you know, how we really become detectives when we become clinicians and physicians, trying to figure all this out, trying to understand the pathophysiology with treatment, with diagnosis and all of that. So I think for me, that's one of the favorite things of medicine that I enjoy. Um, you know, also scientific inquiry every day in your job, you're asking questions. And even as a student, um, you know, you have to think, think beyond, expand your mind, opportunities for teaching and learning all the time. So those are the things that I loved about it. And that kind of grew through my career and is still growing. So of course, um, one of your main interests is in medical education. So the follow-up question is, why did you get involved with medical education? Okay. So, you know, that is an interesting question. So the way I got involved in medical education was actually as a resident. Um, when I, so I trained in India and, you know, there we were medical students. And then when I came to the U.S. for residency, um, of course, we had medical students rotating on the wards. And I realized that, you know, the experience is so much better for everyone if we do do teaching sessions, if not daily, but every few days. If we talk about topics that we've seen, everybody remembers it better. And as a resident, I was forced to learn those things to teach them to medical students. So it's actually a two-way street, you know, so you end up learning a lot. Um, and that was something I think I really enjoyed. So from there on, then as a fellow, I started delving more into it. I designed curriculum because I was a cardiology fellow. So EKG curriculum, echo curriculum. So that was a lot of fun. And then I realized, you know, the back and forth, the way you can connect with people through education is different from the way you can connect with people in the clinical setting. Um, and, you know, it really does force you to learn things that you never thought you would because you get asked a lot of questions that you really didn't anticipate. Um, and that's great. So, you know, you're improving on one end and you're transmitting knowledge. And, you know, as, as you grow through your education and through your training, you realize that things that were challenging for you to explain become a lot easier um, and that's the process. So it's it's a great process. It's a great, you know, cognitive process, but it's also a lot of fun. And it really allows you to connect with people through all levels. So, you know, at this point, we teach everyone, we teach medical students, we teach nurses, we teach nurse practitioners, there's a lot of different variable groups. Um, and to take the same content and translate that to different groups and make it meaningful from them, that's always fun and challenging. So um, you mentioned that when during your fellowship, you designed an EKG curriculum, you designed an echo curriculum. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Because it's very interesting that even as a fellow, that you were involved in curriculum design. 
Right. No, and that was a lot of fun because I, I was something I was asked to do because I enjoyed teaching. And then they said, well, can you, you know, teach the residents EKG? So I said, fine, you know, we need a curriculum then. So then we started developing this and finding examples of EKGs, making it interactive so that, you know, it, it's quite a process because it's a lot different than teaching a single topic or doing a presentation because um, you have to have a little bit of a longitudinal curriculum. And then um, when I did do my ECHO fellowship, which was after general cardiology, I think we had a great opportunity there to actually take ECHO cases and create a database of ECHO cases, create clinical vignettes and turn it into this entire, you know, curriculum. Um, and so I think the other thing that we were asked to do at that point was to take um, ECHO and teach it to residents, to medical students, you know, as point of care ultrasound, which was a new thing at that time, you know, this was three or four years ago. So that was a lot of fun. And I think we, you know, so again, you take the same echo and you're teaching it to fellows, but then you're taking it and you're teaching it to non-cardiologists as well, which is interesting because you have to make it equally relevant. Um, so I think that's where we got interested in curriculum design. And then I realized that, you know, when you do design the curriculum, you have a lot more control over what you're teaching, which is good and bad. You know, it, it can make it challenging as well, but it means that you really, really know what's going on. So, you know, you do have that sense of control, you you know it, so it's, it becomes a bit easier to teach in that sense. And um, then, you know, when when I was graduating from my fellowship, I actually got involved in simulation because um, UCSF has a simulation lab. So they actually invited us to, to take their mannequin and design some curriculum. So again, we didn't do that in isolation. We took it and made an echo course out of it. So we teach them on the ultrasound mannequin. Um, then we'd have little videos of Echo for them to watch. We'd have a pre-test and a post-test. So it was this nice little course that we ran for the incoming fellows. And that was fun because, you know, I, for us as general cardiology fellows, we would have to learn Echo on the job, on call, and that's extremely scary. Um, so this gave fellows kind of, a, you know, a nice safe environment to learn before they were on call. So you mentioned that you teach um, students at very many different levels from high school to medical school to cardiology fellows. So across all these wide array of age ranges, what are the traits of students that are bound for success? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, what I've noticed, at least in my experience, is you know, students who are disciplined, um, and I say this as someone who's not very disciplined myself, but who are at least disciplined, you know, enough to kind of prepare for their classes, or even if they haven't had the opportunity to do so, will go back and read afterwards and really create context for themselves. Because there's only so much you can learn in a class or in a clinical situation. But for that knowledge to stick, there has to be some groundwork done. Um, and this, this is something you know I continue to do now. So if, for instance, you're seeing a patient or you're being taught something, you read about it before, read about it after. And that really consolidates the knowledge. Because I think the goal of education as a whole, the way I see it, is really to create knowledge that is intrinsic, that sticks. So you don't have to think about these things. And, you know, as you will see, um, you know, the, that's the reason we have these massive training programs. They go on for years and years and years to give you the opportunity to keep learning the same thing. Um, because frankly, what you learn in medical school, that is the length and breadth of the curriculum. And then you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's how you create intrinsic knowledge. So it's, it's almost layering. It's building on that. So I think any student who is really focused and understands kind of the mechanisms of learning and this is different for every single person so I think you know learning what works best for you some people will do better with repetition some people will do better with visualization so you using all those contexts and really knowing yourself but still doing that groundwork I think that's number one number two is you know having empathy for yourself your family your patients your colleagues you know just in general understanding the world around you it makes it because medicine is a stressful profession Medical school is stressful. We all acknowledge that. And it's a whole new world. 
So I think, you know, learning kind of how to have those tools to make yourself feel okay, to manage stress, to keep engaged with your support network, I think that's always very important. And that's a little bit overlooked because we focus so much on on the studies and, the, you know, how to see patients and all of that. But there's a whole second layer that I think is very important for students. So the ones who find a good balance of, you know, maintaining their work, but also maintaining their social structure, I think that's also extremely helpful. Great. So um, one of the things that uh, you're involved with is a class for the first year medical students at Stanford University School of Medicine. So first, could you tell me a little bit about that class and your experience teaching that, co-leading that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a role that I just took on last year. So this is the practice of medicine course for the first year medical students. Now, this is a longitudinal course that runs through the first and second years of medical school. Um, and really what it is, is it's interesting because the, the block that we teach, which is I'm co-lead of Q3. So that is runs parallel to the cardiopulmonary block in their science of medicine course, which is more theoretical. Um, so, the, you know, one advantage for me was that there's a lot of cardiology so that in a way it makes it much easier for me. Um, but I, you know, I don't know for the students. But anyway, so I think that that's part of what it is. So it runs parallel to that. But we have a lot of clinical reasoning you know, advanced clinical skills where students are taught EKGs, cases, and it's a lot about thinking through how you practice medicine, which is why I love it. It's a very practical course, but it also gives students tremendous opportunities to do different things like, you know, see standardized patients, clinical problem solving, you know, so the, and plus they have geriatrics, psychiatry, so many, many different things. So it's almost like a mini ward session um, where we train students to have the skills to when they're in their true clerkships. So you mentioned that you just got involved with it last year. Right. Um, so how does one get involved with like teaching students, teaching medical students? How, how did you get into your position? Right. So actually, I've been teaching medical students again since I was a fellow at in my ECHO fellowship. Um, and there, in fact, we did, um, we taught longitudinal small groups um, with similar things, clinical reasonings and cases. So I had a lot of experience before I came to Stanford a couple of years ago. Um, and it was good because it's it's definitely a different skill set that you really have to work on because it's different and you get asked many questions and you're working through these basic concepts. And some of these concepts can be very challenging, especially when you're talking about subspecialties. Um, so it's a really good, you know, uh, course to teach. And then when I came to Stanford, I did some volunteer teaching within the School of Medicine. Um, and then these positions come up from time to time. So when it came up, I applied for it and and, you know, I was fortunate enough to get it. But yeah, but I, I did do quite a bit of teaching even at Stanford in the medical school specifically before. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, um, of course, the big thing going on right now is COVID-19 pandemic. So the question is, how must medical education evolve and adapt in the era of COVID-19? Right. And that's another great question. Um, and I will tell you that our course, the practice of medicine course, actually starts in March. And we found out just a few weeks before that, that we're going to have to go completely remote. And we didn't even know if it was, and this is a course that actually has, um, you know, a lot of clinical interaction with standardized patients and things like that. So it was a big shock for us uh, because, you know, we have several students and we weren't sure how to do it. But over the few weeks and as we went into the course, we were able to adapt that curriculum to be pretty much remote for the most part. And, you know, some things were deferred. Um, And so in, in part of that, we learned that it is possible to do remote instruction it may be more challenging, of course, with actual patients, but at least in terms of simulated things, it's fairly simple. Um, and then similarly for uh, cardiology, we have a cardiology clerkship, which I teach in with, with all the other faculty. Um, and when I, you know, when I had this experience in the practice of medicine course, I realized there are students who they've lost award time because they just can't come in, unfortunately. So what we ended up doing is um, I created this uh, uh, virtual clerkship for cardiology, which ran for a couple of weeks. 
Um, and the idea was to give students kind of clinical time virtually so that they would still be able to get some of their credits and they'd still be able to have the experience, even if it was attenuated. Um, so what we did, and that was actually a lot of fun. Uh, we created this entire curriculum, which had, you know, faculty speakers. So I, I invited experts who were, you know, subspecialists, so interventional cardiology, heart failure, uh, pregnancy and, and cardiology, those type of people to basically come and speak to students about their specialties and make it very clinical and very kind of um, interactive. So we did that. We had uh, faculty, we had uh, cases which we would review as a group talk about clinical reasoning, talk about management, and then we'd have these simulated ward cases. So we would email the students with these cases and every day email a little bit more, well, this is the EKG, what would you do now? This is the echo, and then we'd get to management. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I think our students enjoyed it, at least I hope they do. And uh, yeah, so, so that was one big adaptation that we had to do. Now, thankfully, you know, many students are back in clerkships. We don't know how things are going to evolve over the next several months. But we do have now, I think, amongst all the different uh, educators in the School of Medicine, people do have a little bit of experience now in virtual curriculums. And so we can continue to grow that if we ever needed to, or even if we wanted to just add to our clerkships and have a little bit more you know, experience for the students we have. We're learning. It's all learning on the job. Right. So um, of one of the interesting things to consider about the COVID-19 pandemic is the increasing use of telehealth. And certainly a lot of people think that telehealth is going to be a much more significant factor going forward as patients find it much more convenient. So the question from you is that is medical education in some way um, going to be have a more virtual curriculum in the future or do you think it's going to largely resort to in-person? That's a good point. That's a good thing. So at this point, you know, in our clinics, we've reverted to a lot of patients being seen virtually. And then we bring in those patients who really need a physical exam or we're concerned about or things like that. So I think, as you say correctly, our practice, at least on the outpatient setting, has evolved quite quickly to include telehealth. And even sometimes on the inpatient setting, because again, if patients are high risk or they have actual COVID and you want to minimize exposure, protect PPE, then you don't need every consultant going in, you know. So then we do have video options for those kind of things as well. So so the situation is certainly evolving. Um, and I think, you know, as part of that, if that's what we're doing as practice, then it's only natural for the medical education to evolve in the same vein. Um, and I think that's something that we will have to start thinking about. I do know for now that certain clerkships where, for instance, if they're shadowing people in outpatient clinics and those outpatient clinics are virtual, then it's a virtual shadowing. So it will be on Zoom or something else. So so we are learning about these modalities. I don't think, you know, um, I think the goal is going to be to try and go back to inpatient, in-person as, as much as we can. But I don't think after this type of an event, we'll ever be able to go back 100%. Because now we've also found that we can do things differently. It's easier for patients. There are patients who have to drive six hours and, you know, it's not that much changes. So uh, certainly we can space out, you know, you can do video between in-person visits. So there are ways to make things more convenient. Um, but I think, you know, the challenge for us as clinicians is to never, you know, some, some patients really do need to be seen and that physical exam is so critical. Um, and so to not lose sight of that. And I think that's something that we'll continue to learn about. That's fair enough. So, um, I mean, just thinking beyond the COVID-19 pandemic, where is medical education headed? What direction are we going? Where is the field going? Okay, well, I hope it's headed in a good direction because that would be the hope from all of us. I think it's definitely evolving rapidly. Um, I think this pandemic has shown us that we can do things, you know, in non-traditional ways and still have good success and still teach our students and our trainees, you know, well. 
um, and and try to not lose some of the essence of medical education, which is the spirit of seeing patients, the rapport, the physical exam. There's so many things that you you can't do as well virtually. So I think what hopefully the the goal will be in the future is to nicely balance these things so that students, you know, if if there is a situation where then we want to limit their exposure and protect students, protect patients, then maybe we have a hybrid model where, you know, we have them come in and see patients, but it's also things that can be done remotely are done remotely. So, you know, we have these options. Um, and I think that may be a good sequence for the future. It may also save time, you know, because if students then when they're on the ward, they're really focused on seeing patients. But when they're not, then they're still getting their education virtually. So I think there are lots of options. I think, you know, we've just this is the tip of the iceberg. So we have a lot to learn. <laughs> and of course, another question that I wanted to ask is, is there any education technology that you're excited by? One of the, some of the big things are um, 3D printing, virtual reality. You know, that's a good question. And I think especially because of where we are all located geographically, we will have access to some of these things sooner than other people. Um, so we may get to try all these prototypes. I think that's good. You know, if people are interested in the education space, because it's a space that has, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest. But of course, it's still, you know, we have patients to take care of. We have all these other things. So, so someone who's interested and can develop things in with technology and education, I think it would be well taken, especially at this time when we've really seen what can happen. Um, so I think, you know, anything at this point, I haven't heard of anything off the cuff, D different from, of course, virtual and simulation. I think people are getting very creative with the technologies we have. Um, and I think, you know, there are even people who are bringing in standardized patients and then broadcasting that over Zoom or real patients and taking consent and doing it that way. So people are finding great workarounds um, to, you know, to still have the same experience for students. But I think things like virtual reality and, and you know, simulation to that end, that can really be utilized in the future. But I think that will take a little time to build that into a curriculum. Gotcha. And um, when you look at medical education nationally, where does it fall short? What are the big issues that medical education is facing today? Right. So taking us, so, so this was, let's talk about even before the pandemic. I think, I think the big issues are to really balance what we're trying to teach students with having them see patients and with having them kind of integrate that into a full model. So I think, um, you know, every university does their best to really try and give their students the best experience. I think that's always the mission of every university. But I think there are challenges intrinsically in the system because, you know, there's a tremendous amount of stress for students that that has always been, I'll tell you, you know, 20 years ago, students were equally stressed out. It's just that the demands are different. Um, and I think, you know, balancing those demands being aware that, you know, society is changing. Um, I think that's one thing. The other thing that we are all thinking about at, you know, at a university level and at a kind of global level, in fact, is you know, there are so many other issues in our society that students are facing, you know, uh, systemic racism, social injustice, all these other things that are coming to the forefront. They've always been there, but, you know, they're getting talked about. Um, and how do we include that in a curriculum? And how do we make that more so that it doesn't need, you know, that there's not one sentinel event or things don't happen around one event that we're teaching this from the beginning and so that everybody's comfortable with this. And, you know, even for the educators to be trained in how to talk to students, how to deal with these issues, these are difficult conversations to have. Um, and everyone wants to be respectful of, of, you know, the group. But I think that is something that we all think about. How do we incorporate all these things into our curriculum? And there's a lot of work being done about that. So I think things are going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Could you speak actually a little bit about the work being done to target these problems? And also, um, how can students get involved with contributing to a better future of medical education? 
Right. No, and I think you're absolutely right. It's not it's not a one-way street. It's definitely a back and forth and it's definitely, you know, students being involved. That that's the best thing for change because change comes from the youth really. So I think that's really important. Um, I think, you know, a lot of what's being done is to figure out how do we these these really complex political, geographical, social problems, how do we incorporate that into a curriculum? You know, at this point, we've been hit by the pandemic and it's something we never expected. And, you know, people have managed to adapt, people learn resilience. You know, there are so many things that we're all learning. So I think, you know, how do we incorporate those to give students because students are going to be the next generation of physicians um, and educators. And how do we give them the skill set to also be able to manage these things and potentially do a better job than we've done? Um, so I think that's really where the, the work is kind of going from. Um, and I think that, you know, for students to get involved, there are tremendous opportunities. Um, you know, all you need is interest and enthusiasm. And, you know, I think finding good mentors, um, you know, I know Stanford has some summer programs and things like that. So, you know, just uh, doing some research and figuring out where you can get involved. But even at a local and community level, you know, there are lots of things in people's own communities where they can get involved in edu you know education never goes amiss so if you have something to teach people and there are people to listen there's always a nice back and forth so you start at any level and then of course there are plenty of volunteer opportunities um, you know for people to come and work for people to come and, and you know listen learn all of that they, they all exist but it does take a little bit of research to find them that i agree mm -hmm. Um, so you're, of course, involved with one of the best medical schools in the world. Um, so, of course, our viewers would love to um, know your advice for how, getting into medical school. Do you have any tips or tricks? Oh, OK. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know if I have any tips or tricks, but I can tell you um, that, you know, there are a few that I think that are helpful. Um, you know, one is, is really interest and enthusiasm. And I say that and I mean it. So I think really you know, you have to want to go to medical school because you care about patients, you care about medicine, you care about science, and then everything will kind of work together for that for that goal. But I think having a good mentor is extremely important. And sometimes it's not, you know, for instance, I'm a cardiologist, but one of my biggest mentors is a rheumatologist. So it's not always where you expect to find these people. Um, but I think in my career from the beginning, there have always been people who kind of taught me, supported me, and you'll find mentors in the strangest of places. So, you know, never kind of ignore advice or someone who you think may be able to help you because you never know how they'll be able to help you in the future. So I think finding strong mentorship and maintaining that and, you know, taking interest in your mentor as well, because it really is a two-way street. So if they are giving you something, you know, giving them that attention and respect back and that enthusiasm is always helpful. Um, so I think, you know, finding an, a nice, strong mentor and, and building that relationship is one of the most important things, because these are people who have done this before and who will be able to guide you kind of on a step-by-step -step basis. That's number one. Um, then I think number two is, you know, having empathy and developing empathy in your life and in your practice as a student, you know, interacting with other people, because that's a skill that's actually going to take you very far in your career. Um, and, you know, everyone's surrounded by their family who's dealing with them, going through exams, going through the, it, it's very rigorous going through medical school. So even a little bit of empathy for your family. And I, I still work on that myself. Um, but a lot of people have supported us in this journey. So I think always remembering that. Um, and then I think, you know, uh, everybody, of course, knows that to get into medical school, there are lots of things you need to do. Scores are important, but, you know, additional activities, um, you know, starting starting things that may actually help you further your research career, your clinical career, starting them early. Those are all helpful. Um, but I would say, you know, and I really believe this, what you say no to is as important as what you say yes to. Um, so, you know, and that's why I said when you have an interest to go to medical school, really kind of figure out what is driving that interest. 
So is it because you're interested in clinical medicine? Is it research? Do you not know yet? And that's perfectly acceptable because, you know, you want to learn these things as you see them. But, you know, where are your interests stemming from? And then kind of work to build that as your focus, which means that, you know, if you are interested in research, you'll get involved in research activities. But don't do things just for the sake of doing them. You know, do things that further your own emission and your own interests. And kind of stay true to yourself because that really comes across as authentic in your application. It comes across as, you know, you're building things because you care about these things. And really caring and showing that you care, I think that's always critical. Incredible. So, um, well, I think that nearly wraps up the episode. But before we go, I wanted to ask you for pieces of advice for students interested in combining a career in healthcare with teaching, with education, as you have done so. Okay. Perfect. So let me think about this because that's not easy. Um, So I think, you know, one thing is that careers don't develop all at once. So they are stepwise. They're very layered. So, you know, at some point, maybe you do more teaching, some point you do more clinical, and then eventually over time it evolves. And I'm still in this process where I'm growing one aspect and growing the other aspect. So be prepared for that. So a little bit of patience is good because, you know, sometimes you want it all at once, but it doesn't happen all at once. It really is kind of it builds on itself. Um, so I think, you know, take, taking from that, that would come back to my advice, which, which is important even in careers, which is to be true to yourself. And it sometimes becomes even harder when you're in practice because, you know, in medical school, there is some amount of structure. But then when you're out and you're building a career, you can really do what you want, especially at, at places like Stanford where you have many opportunities. So you really have to focus on the opportunities that, are, that kind of are what you're interested in, what you believe in, what you want to further. Um, and I think that's that's always good advice to look at every opportunity as, you know, what can I contribute to this? What can this contribute to me and build along those kind of things? So so focus on your interests and focus on your passion, because that just makes life more fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for those questions. And it was a pleasure to be here. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. You can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all social media so that you don't miss out on any of our content.